Welcome to Full Rigor, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis, and today we're going to talk about a case that happened in Florida in the 1950s that ended up influencing sex discrimination laws, a future Supreme Court justice, and the rights of women for the next 70 years. So the case starts with a couple in the 1950s who lived in Hillsborough County near Tampa. And Gwendolyn Hoyt was a wife who was sick and tired of being abused mentally and physically. Her husband was running around town with women. And they got into an argument about his infidelity. And they got into a fight because he refused her offer of forgiveness apparently because she got upset with his affairs. She had suffered mental and physical abuse in her marriage. She was neurotic, if not psychotic. He had beaten her. She said that he stripped her naked and he raped her. So as we've discussed on my Full Rigor podcast, she snapped and she beat him to death with a baseball bat. So at her second-degree murder trial in Tampa, Hoyt pleaded temporary insanity. Now, when Gwendolyn Hoyt came to trial in Tampa in 1957, only 218 of the more than 46,000 women voters, yes, women could vote at that time, 19th Amendment, in Hillsborough County, had registered. The jury commissioner placed only 10 of those women's names in a pool of 10,000 names, and it was no surprise Gwendolyn Hoyt was tried by a jury of six men who obviously were not going to be too compassionate about a wife who beat her husband to death with a baseball bat simply because he was stepping out on her. So Hoyt protested that she was not being tried by a jury drawn from a cross-section of the community, a jury of her peers. And that claim was denied by the trial judge, by the Florida Supreme Court, and in 1961, by a unanimous U.S. Supreme Court decision. They said, quote, women are the center of home and family life. This was Justice John Marshall Harlan. If the state of Florida wished to offer women easy excuses from jury service, it could do so. The assistant attorney general for the state of Florida argued if men and women are truly equal, Hoyt should have had no objection to being judged by men. Well, that kind of makes sense. And the six-men jury deliberated for 25 minutes before finding her guilty, of course. They sentenced her to 30 years hard labor. Hoyt claimed that her all-male jury led to discrimination and unfair circumstances during her trial. At the time, Florida law provided that women could serve as jurors only if they specifically requested to be put on the jury rolls. And again, only 10 women appeared on the list of 10,000 jurors eligible to serve in Hillsborough County at the time of Hoyt's trial. So after she was found guilty, Hoyt appealed to the Florida Supreme Court, declaring that because none of the eligible women served on the jury that convicted her, she had been deprived of her 14th Amendment right to equal protection under the law. Hoyt alleged that women jurors would have better understood her plight and would therefore have acted as more reliable determiners of her temporary insanity defense than obviously the men would. So when the state Supreme Court upheld her conviction, Hoyt appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court writing for a unanimous court. Justice Harlan began by reciting a truism of constitutional law, making it clear that women were not granted additional rights 
under the 14th Amendment. He said the right to an impartially selected jury assured by the 14th Amendment does not entitle one accused of a crime to a jury tailored to the circumstances of their particular case. It requires only that the jury be indiscriminately drawn from among those eligible in the community for jury service. Unfortunately, her jury was made up entirely of men because the state in which she was tried, Florida, virtually excluded women from jury service. So in Florida, no woman had served on a jury there until 1949. And the first woman elected to the Florida legislature introduced a bill to require women to serve. After a long debate in which opponents said they did not want their wives and sisters exposed to the embarrassment of hearing filthy evidence, a compromise bill was passed that provided that women's names would be added to the jury pool only if they went to the county courthouse and registered their willingness to be considered eligible. So the American Civil Liberties Union filed a Supreme Court brief in support of Hoyt. It was probably the first time the ACLU had filed such a brief in a sex discrimination case. And the brief was written by Dorothy Kenyon, and she was an ACLU director and had been one of the first women to graduate from New York University Law School. And she was idolized by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She spent decades fighting for equal jury service for women in New York. The developments in the case were followed closely by Kenyon's close friend and colleague, the African-American lawyer, Polly Murray, who decided to go to law school in part over her fury over white juries convicting black men. So on the first day of her confirmation hearings as a Supreme Court justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg told the story of Gwendolyn Hoyt, who was convicted again in 1957 of the murder of her husband, by an all-male jury. But before Kenyon died, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had begun to work on the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. And the project was committed to persuading the Supreme Court to reverse its decisions on three major 20th century cases that had sustained sex discrimination. And one of those was Hoyt. Gwendolyn Hoyt, of course, had been released by then from prison. She was living a quiet and exemplary life in her hometown of Tampa at the time. And when Ginsburg completed writing the brief for Reed versus Reed in 1971, in which she was to persuade the Supreme Court to rule for the first time that arbitrary discrimination on the basis of gender, the basis of sex, was a denial of equal treatment under the law. So the title page of the plaintiff's brief in Reed bears the names not only of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but also Dorothy Kenyon and Polly Murray. Even though the two women didn't help write the brief, Ginsburg honored them by putting their names on the brief. So in honor of the 25th Annual Women of the Year Awards, Glamour Magazine awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she described her struggles that she faced in her early career and legal battle for equal rights for women and her Supreme Court legacy. And she told Glamour Magazine, you can also see this in the movie about RBG on the basis of sex. She attended Harvard and was first in her class for three years and even took her husband's courses because he was battling testicular cancer. And then he got a job as a tax attorney in New York. So her last year of law school, Harvard would not give her an honorary degree. She finished her last year of law school at Columbia in New York. So apparently Ruth could not get a job. She was turned down like 15 times. Her husband had no problem. And she ended up taking a job as a professor at the School of Law at Rutgers. I graduated from law school in 1959. There were no anti-discrimination laws and employers were upfront that they did not want a woman. And even if they would risk taking a chance on a woman, they surely would not take a chance on a mother with a four-year-old child. 
My object and the object of the women in my class was to get a job. And that was uh, no mean feat. And this audio is coming from her interview with Glamour Magazine, which again honored her with the Lifetime Achievement Award for their 25th Annual Women of the Year Awards. And at the time, Ruth Bader Ginsburg saw the discrimination on the basis of sex as the same as discrimination on the basis of skin color. Judges understood by that time that racial discrimination was odious, but they thought that laws discriminating against women were for the women's own protection. So my job was to let the court see that these classifications more often put women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. So a tax case that was brought to Ruth's attention by her tax attorney husband, Martin, was about a non-divorced single bachelor who was taking care of his mother and he took a tax deduction, which at the time could only be taken by women or divorced men. So in 1970, Martin, her husband, brings Moritz v. Commissioner, a tax law case, to Ruth's attention. And Charles Moritz is from Denver, and he had to hire a nurse to help him care for his aging mother so he could continue to work. And he was denied the tax deduction for the nursing care because at the time, Section 214 of the Internal Revenue Code specifically limited the deduction to a woman, a widower, or a divorcee, or a husband whose wife is incapacitated or institutionalized, but not to a man who's never been married. And the court ruled that Moritz, a man who had never been married, did not qualify for the deduction. Well, the whole thing went all the way to the appellate court, and that's where Ruth and her husband actually argued this case. And they ended up ruling in Ruth's favor, and a woman's rights attorney and future Supreme Court justice was born, and paving the way and setting precedent for future sex discrimination cases that would make their way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the case that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court was Reed versus Reed, and it was an equal protection case in the United States in which the Supreme Court ruled that the administrators of estates cannot be named in a way that discriminates between the sexes. There were a whole bunch of laws that discriminated between the sexes at the time. Now, the Idaho Probate Code specified that males must be preferred to females in appointing administrators of estates. Yeah, don't worry your pretty little head about numbers. Men are better at numbers. We'll let the men handle the estate. I remember distinctly in middle school two events that happened to me in the 70s. I am nowhere near what... RBG did for women, but I did my own little thing. First of all, we had an indoor pool. I was in Michigan, in Rochester, Michigan, actually the same town that uh, Madonna grew up in. And I had really short hair. I had a pixie cut. And at the time, because I was a girl, I had to wear a bathing cap in the pool. And there was a kid in my class, a boy, who had shoulder-length hair. And he did not have to wear a bathing cap because he was a boy, but he had really long hair, which would clog the drain. My hair was an inch long, and I had to wear a bathing cap, so I protested. Also, the drafting class, I wanted to take it, but it was only available for boys. So I huffed and I puffed, and I went to the principal, and I got into the drafting class. I was the only girl, designed a car and made one. My car had three wheels, and it was made out of balsa and promptly crashed. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It was fun. And so I felt that I was breaking some ground. And then finally, in 1980, when Jimmy Carter reinstituted the draft with the Carter Doctrine, I actually was upset because it was only for males born in the year of 1962. Well, I was a female born in the year of 1962. So at the time, I felt very strongly that I would like to represent my country, even though I was a female, that I had the right to do that. 
So I signed up and then promptly went off to college at the University of Hawaii. Well, a couple months later, a knock on the door. My mom opens it there in Michigan, and a draft sergeant is standing there asking for Karen Curtis, who signed up for the draft. And my mother said, oh, my God, uh, she's now at college. Um, disregard. Anyway, the things I did are very small in comparison to what RBG did. But at the time, I think all women were fighting for their rights. So back to Reed versus Reed. After the death of their adopted son, both Sally and Cecil Reed sought to be named the administrator of their son's estate, and the couple was separated at the time. And according to the probate code, Cecil was appointed administrator, and Sally challenged the law in court. While Reed versus Reed was an equal protection case in the United States, the Supreme Court ruled that the administrators of estates cannot be named in a way that discriminates between the sexes. Ruth got the news while riding a train in New York. A man on the train was reading the New York Post. He held it up and I could see the banner headline, Supreme Court Outlaws Sex Discrimination. I was exhilarated and it was a great beginning. So by the time RBG was appointed Associate Justice by Bill Clinton in 1993, Ginsburg had authored nearly 200 opinions and broken new ground for gender equality in the United States. President Clinton called me late one Sunday evening and said, Ruth, I have chosen you as my nominee for the court. I was on cloud nine. Being part of an institution that's respected all over the world, it's the hardest and the best job I've ever had. And I'm sure at the time she didn't ask Bill Clinton about his treatment of women and whether or not he had raped anybody or sexually abused anybody or possibly had had an affair with an intern. But anyway, Ruth is indomitable. She is a total tiger on the Supreme Court. And she probably was fully expecting Hillary Clinton to win the presidency in 2016, and she could have retired, but no, Donald Trump did. So in order to keep the court balanced between liberal and conservative, she has to stay on the court, and she remains there. And at the age of 87, she has fallen, broken her ribs. She's had pancreatic cancer. She's had a tumor removed from her lung. She is amazing. She keeps on going. You have to give her credit. She is one strong, iron-willed woman. Now, Ruth does something really cool. In addition to her black robe, she wears something called a jabot, which is like the collar around the black robe. You know, like Judge Judy wears a lace collar. Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for as long as she's been on the Supreme Court, has jazzed up her black robes with some truly dazzling neckwear. What distinguishes Ginsburg's fashion sense, however, is that she's attached subtle meaning to her neck pieces. Justices don't typically express political opinions, but she does with her jabots. So, when Ginsburg wants to channel her approval, she wears a crocheted yellow and pink jabot with crystals. And she says, when I'm announcing the opinion for the court, this is the collar I wear. She says, the piece was a gift from her law clerks. So, it's one of her special favorite jabots that she wears. Now, Ginsburg wears her notorious dissenting collar whenever she likes to communicate her condemnation. The day after Trump's election, she wore it to sit on the bench, even though the court didn't issue any decisions that day. It's kind of metallic and pointy looking, and she says she selected this particular jabot to express disagreement because it looks fitting for dissent. And it's become so popular among RBG fans that you can even buy it online for 35 bucks, a similar one. 
And the Supreme Court Justice has a favorite in her collection. It's a simple white jabot handmade from Cape Town, South Africa. And the neck piece also inspired some Etsy swag, so they sell it there as well. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg wore her favorite jabot to Barack Obama's first address to a joint session of the U.S. Congress on December 31st, 2005. So there you have it. Another case from Florida that has national implications and also launches a housewife to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's Full Rigor. Thanks for joining me. Until next time. Your story. It lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors. We're gonna pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.